The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with John Thomas Flynn, who is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Ask the CIO, SLED edition on Federal News Network. Now your host, John Thomas Flynn. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Martin O'Malley, former mayor of Baltimore and governor of Maryland. So welcome to Ask the CIO SLED edition, our state and local program, Governor. It's great to have you in the studio. Mr. Flynn, awesome to be with you. Thanks for uh, having an interest in smarter government. Well, uh, your career in elective office has been marked by your passion, which I share, and that's good governance. But before we explore your endeavors in this area and your new book about the same, Perhaps a, a brief background on your life and career is in order. You're no stranger to the local environs here in uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland, aren't you? That's right. I was is it bred BS or Lords. I went to Our Lady of Lords, <laughs> and then went to Gonzaga. I was uh, bred and buttered here. And I'm surprised you didn't go for the double eagle at Boston College like me. Uh, I went to Catholic University, uh, so not quite the double eagle, but double Catholic. Well, give us a little bit more of your background then. Sure. I grew up in the in the Washington suburbs of, of Maryland, moved to Baltimore for law school, was a prosecutor for a couple of years right out of law school, and then uh, frustrated with all of the tragedy I saw every day in those courtrooms, I ran for office thinking that if I were in elective office, I might be able to do something about the root causes. Uh, so I served for a couple of terms on the Baltimore City Council and quickly realized that unless we can make our city safer, we don't really have much hope of getting greater traction on jobs, employment, housing, all of those root causes, and not to mention education. So uh, I thought I was getting out of politics altogether, and at the last minute, Kwaisi Mfume, very popular congressman, head of the NAACP, decided not to run for mayor of Baltimore. And I felt that the others who were running couldn't do what needed to be done. So I ran. I won all six council districts, won a majority. And then we put Baltimore on a path for the biggest crime reduction of any major city in America over the next 10 years. Uh, I ran for governor in 2006 and then brought this same new way of governing, uh, the data, the map, the measures, uh, to state government, applied it to a range of things, including the Chesapeake Bay, with some tremendous success thanks to the good people that God blessed me with and on my cabinet and also I believe thanks to the insights of others who tipped me that we have never had better technology to make our democracy work the key is leadership and management and that's why I wrote this book because our our democracy is in crisis and the crisis is democracy itself whether we still believe it works and we can make it work I believe we can and that's why I wrote this book and that's what I was going to ask you. My next question is why you did it. Uh, since you've already started with that, why don't we tell me a little bit about your uh, relationship with Jack uh, Dangerman at uh, Esri. That uh, initial experience with him you describe in your introduction. Tell right. us about that. Yeah. Kind of lit the fire, I think. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was very fortunate, lucky, blessed that um, God dealt me two Jacks. One was Jack Maple, who had invented this system for modern policing called CompStat, timely, accurate information shared by all, rapid deployment of resources, effective tactics and strategies, relentless follow-up. Those were the tenants that went enterprise-wide with CityStat, and then we took it statewide with StateStat. Shortly after I was elected governor, Jack Dangermon, who founded Esri many years ago, in fact, Maryland was his Eighth client, client 008, John, which tells you that Jack only ever intended to have 999 clients <laughs> when he started. But with my senior staff, he had asked for a meeting, and I said, well, others might want to come to this. We should have senior staff sit in on this. So Jack said, um, 
you know, I wanted to meet with you because you figured out something that most politicians haven't yet. And of course, being in politics and having a big ego and being terribly insecure, I said, <laughs> tell me more about my genius. And so Jack began to, he said, give me your legal pad and I'll show you what I mean. So I handed him my legal pad. He said, uh, imagine that this pad is a map of your state. And then he started commandeering cup containers, you know, people's water jugs or, or cups of coffee. He said, each of these cylinders represents a separate silo, one of the separate departments in your government. Now, you could uh, pay some IT firm forever in a day to try to connect up and down all of the different human permutations, all of the different responsibilities have in these silos of information, and you'll never, ever do it. You'll pay the IT company a lot, but you'll never get it to all land on one page. He said, if, however, and then he took the cups and he started placing them on the legal pad. He said, if you make sure that the literal database of the Department of Environment, and he put that cup down, your Department of Agriculture, your Department of Transportation, all land on the same map, then the map and its coordinates will coordinate all of that data you'll be able to see patterns, you'll be able to get inside the turning radius of problems, and you'll be able to get things done. That's what you've figured out. And the rest of uh, uh, America's executives aren't quite there yet. And, you know, that began a relationship really where Jack helped us co-create things like BaseStat, a dashboard for not just monitoring, but really driving action to scale across the 36 things that we can do differently on land that would reduce the flow of pollution into the creeks and streams and rivers of the Chesapeake Bay uh, over ultimately six different states. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's how I first came to uh, know Jack Dangermon and the book, Smarter Government, is actually published by Esri. They tell me it's the best-selling book they've yet put out on their in-house press, and I'm, I'm I'm really gratified that practitioners seem to appreciate its usefulness. Yeah. Well, most of the time I've heard from many elected leaders in state and local government uh, that they weren't elected to deal with technology. You know, they have all the, you know, education, crime, all right. that kind of thing. But it's clear you didn't follow that advice. As you know, our program is called Ask the CIO State and Local Edition. Uh, our show has government, politics, and information technology with both IT leadership and program leadership elected officials. And one of the success factors is executive sponsorship for a chief information officer, executive sponsorship. Right. You were an executive champion in spades, and we talked about this a little bit before. Elliot Schlanger was your CIO back then in Baltimore, yeah. and you brought him to Annapolis as well when you were, uh, when you were governor. Tell us about how you empower a chief information officer to be able to do their job because it is one of the toughest jobs in government I found. Yeah, well, I feel as if I were born on a hinge of history. The things that my kids, my adult children, think have been here forever, like the ability to call a, an Uber or a Lyft and to see the little car on your app round the corner and know mm -hmm. it is exactly three minutes away, they think that's the way the world has always been. My mother, God bless her, who had her 92nd birthday the other day, uh, think that that stuff is magic. <laughs> you can't get over this new technology. So I, I wasn't exactly a digital native, but I certainly had been tipped and seen in New York how they made their city a much safer place by putting technology not off in a corner like some sort of support 
thing, uh, like the person that buys the stationery or the pens, yeah. but instead putting technology in the center of the operational circle, appreciating the truth with a immediate real-time knowledge of the latest emerging truth, something technology can do for us now, which we've never had before as self-governing people, that you can actually get the best out of your organization. You can start running plays. One of the examples uh, that Jack Maple gave to me was, could you imagine what a miserable experience it would be to watch a football game where all the players were blindfolded, had no idea where the ball was on the grid, <laughs> and couldn't run plays with each other? Well, with this new technology and in government, we no longer have to be blindfolded. We don't have to bemoan the existence of separate silos of information, memos that twist their way through the organization for four months until you know, no one can remember the initial reason for the question. Now, instead, what we did with CityStat and StateStat was to create, with the CIO right there at the table, a regular cadence of collaboration focused on the latest emerging truth. The technology didn't solve the problem, but the technology told us how we could, sure. whether it was eradicating lead poisoning among kids, uh, whether it was eradicating childhood hunger, improving test scores, making our schools number one in America for five years in a row. These were the things that the technology allowed us to uh, accomplish. And the, the beauty of it wasn't that it allowed us to you know, control the masses. It was that it allowed us never to lose sight of the individual. Mm -hmm. And that is what a self-governing people is really about at its core. Yeah. And I noticed that Slanger was also part of your executive team in your stat meetings. Yeah. We should probably talk about that stat room because it was different than a cabinet meeting where mm -hmm. you'd have, you know, meet once a month. And that's, that's nice. Everybody gets to share coffee and sure. see each other. But let's be honest, you have 20 different departments in a one-hour meeting, you're not really going to go very deep. But at the city stat meetings, and then later as state stat, around one side of this uh, kind of circularly configured room would be the executive, the governor, or the mayor, and his or her command staff. So uh, not only your chief finance uh, person, the person in charge of the budget, but also the person who's your lawyer, the person in charge of the law department, uh, head of HR, and also the CIO. Let me just interrupt you there just for a second, Governor. We're going to take a short break now. Our guest today is Martin O'Malley, former mayor of Baltimore and governor of Maryland. You're listening to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn, and my guest today is Martin O'Malley, former mayor of Baltimore and governor of Maryland. Governor, we were just talking, or you were just describing your ComSat environment, the room that it's right. in. Please continue. Sure, yeah. Around one side of the room would be the governor, the mayor, and those people that had a responsibility that was enterprise-wide in the whole government. So not only your uh, the head of the law department, head of HR, labor commissioner, but also the CIO. And the reason why the chief information officer had to be there 
was because we wanted to know what was happening real time. And in the city context, a lot of that was service delivery. So we were the first city to take the 311, one call for all city services. Chicago actually did that first. So technically we were the second on 311, but we were the first to combine it with that regular recurring cadence of collaboration, those meetings focused on the latest emerging truth. On the other side of the table, for one blessed hour of focus, would be the individual department. So the head of solid waste and the people in his command staff were the counterparts to mine in terms of HR, law, and the operations of how we make our city cleaner. After that one hour, uh, with, by the way, a note taker, an agenda, a follow-up memo that would be in everybody's inbox before the close of business on the items that they had agreed to resolve before the next meeting happened two weeks later, that department would leave and the housing department would come in and the housing commissioner would have her command staff around that table and we would untangle all of those things that get in the way of us delivering better results for citizens. And it wasn't just about hunch, wasn't about opinion, wasn't about intuition. It was based on what's happening now and the answer to the ultimate question of, are we doing any better this week than we were last week when we were all together in this room with integrity and honesty around the latest emerging truth? Let me ask you about your first CityStat meeting with your solid waste supervisor with a name difficult to pronounce. Joe Kolodzieski. <laughs> Joe Kolodzieski. Joe K. Uh, in your rhetorical flourish, you state that his initial description was not the root of the problem, but the flowers of its symptoms. <laughs> Tell us about that problem and how you did that. You delved down into it to really find out what was the real issue. Yeah, this is what we don't do enough of in government, uh, which is to ask the five whys. Uh, Joe said that his biggest problem with his workforce and making the city cleaner uh, was that uh, unexcused absences. I said, well, why is that, Joe? So that's your first why. Joe said, well, you know, we have a lot of people that might be their first job out of prison or back in the workforce uh, collecting trash, and a lot, we have a lot of addiction. So there's a lot of unexcused absences. Prompting the next question, well, Joe, when was the last time you wrote anybody up for what Woody Allen calls 90% of life, which is just showing up? And Joe said, well, you know, we generally don't do that. Second why. Why, Joe? Well, because the labor contract's really complicated. Now, in most governments, that kind of ends the conversation, but we have the labor commissioner at the table. Mr. Labor Commissioner, what about that? What is it in the contract we might need to change? He said, well, sir, it's not complicated. You just have to write people up twice, and then the third time, after they've been warned twice, you can fire them. Back to Joe for the third why. Well, why, Joe, then, don't you write people up? He said, well, sir, we find that even with, if we do that, it's more trouble than it's worth. Fourth why. Why, Joe? Well, because whenever we fire a person from a permanent position, the finance department takes the PIN, the personnel number, full-time position, mm -hmm. and they do away with it in the name of budget savings, and then we have to backfill with a temporary employee who's even less reliable than the often <laughs> absent uh, primary employee. Well, that might be a place where the conversation stopped, but not in a city step meeting because I have the finance director there. So I turned to Peggy Watson. Peggy, is that true? Do we really eliminate the full-time position? And she said, oh, Mr. Mayor, that can't be true. 
I don't think. <laughs> I said, you don't think or you know? She said, uh, we might have done that for the end of one fiscal year, but we certainly don't do that as a matter of course, I don't think. <laughs> I said, well, we're going to make a note of that and run that to ground and let us know two weeks from now when we're all in here again together. And then we moved on with the conversation. But two weeks later, Peggy comes back and I had a follow-up item. Uh, Ms. Watson, did we figure out the answer to that? She said, well, you know, Mr. Mayor, sometimes in government, there's two speeds, on and off. And we flicked the switch to on, namely eliminating full-time positions uh, in order to close out one fiscal year. And we never flicked it back off. I said, when was it that we did that? She said, I believe it was four years ago. <laughs> so oh, we, we changed that right <laughs> then and there. And a memo went out later that day from the finance director, and we started monitoring whether or not people were showing up for work and whether managers were doing what managers need to do, which is to write up people and ultimately fire them if they don't, and more importantly, to lift up you know the high achievers in the eyes of their peers, which is what the system's really about. Well... Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the here wins because I know you make it sound like it was very collegial and worked out, but I know from reading your book there had to be some replacements done over the course of the year when you took on that job as mayor or governor uh, because you didn't get the kind of buy-in that you needed. And obviously it goes back to leadership, which you describe in detail. But I have known where uh, in state and local government, just the uh, the resistance to to change is so difficult to overcome. And you have to build that, what you call it, a cadence of, of collaboration and accountability. accountability. Great. Tell us about how you did that. Because usually I'm always tell the story about the heroines. One of the one people I met in Sacramento when I was CIO there, guy told me when I started, he said, John, I'm a heroine. I said, what's that? He says, I'm here when you got here and I'll be here when you leave. <laughs> that, that was true. That was the attitude of a lot of people. They could wake me out. Oh, yeah. yeah so tell us about the, your leadership style and how you built that uh, cadence, as you call it. Yeah, well, when I meet with new executives and I do some work with Grant Thornton and so I've had been able to meet with new mayors and, and new governors that want to stand up performance management systems and I share with them that the most important rule is to start and don't stop. So the relentlessness of having a rotation of 10 meetings every 14 days and then repeating in the next 14 days sent the message to the entire bureaucracy and I use that word with due respect, but sent the word to the whole organization that this isn't going to stop. This is how we run things now. And while some from afar looked at it as a way to eliminate underperforming employees or fire underperforming employees, it really wasn't about that. What it was about was lifting up the leaders in the organizations. And when the executive has a system that lifts up the high achievers, whether it's getting people through the Motor Vehicle Administration office in a timely fashion, or whether it's uh, on the graffiti crews, or whether it's uh, what, whatever it might be, uh, the 80% of us in the middle that could lean back towards the slackers instead start to lean towards the 10% that are natural leaders if you lift them up repeatedly. And the difference between that tilt is the difference between stagnation and the way we've always done it, or nation-leading progress and achievements we've never had before. Mm. Let's look out a little bit on outside the organization on some resistance. And this is really present day, ripped from the headlines, as they say. I actually see uh, the metrics that are, they're trying to reduce them in some cases. 
Performance, for example, performance measurements in police departments identifying crime hot sites and increasing cops' presence is sometimes called profiling. And in teachers, with the uh, teachers' union, sometimes uh, student performance and testing is very controversial. How do you address those stakeholders to get them on your side as well? We put our city on a path for the biggest reduction in part one crime of any major city in America. It was um, uh, hard fought, and there's not a doubt in my mind that it was because instead of accepting that crime would always happen in certain neighborhoods or open-air drug markets, that they had done a series of TV series about our inability to shut those down in Baltimore. Instead of running away from the problem, uh, we put it on a map and we asked ourselves, look, regardless of race or class, what would we do, uh, what should we do so that all of our citizens enjoy a certain level of public safety in their neighborhoods? Similarly, in, in education, I mean, we were a state that adopted the Common Core curriculum. We certainly uh, believed in, in uh, the importance of testing, but we also treated our teachers with dignity and respect. And we would do a polling instrument. We'd ask teachers about their experience in the classroom, not only with the curricula, but also about the learning environment in their classroom, about the leadership in their school. So the key, I, I think, is everybody can say... Um, there's certain excuses you always hear. We tried that and it didn't work. We're already doing that here. You can't measure what we do. It's different here. Anything that ends with here, right? Anything that ends with here is a red flag for a BS excuse. You forgot one, though. The feds won't let us do that. The feds won't let us do that here. <laughs> uh, so certainly that inertia is real, but I found that the sometimes people would say to us from other governments, how did you figure out how to do that better? And we would say... Nine out of ten times, the answer was we listened to the people yeah. that were doing the job. Jack Maple again. And we asked them, yeah. Stump Jack Maple, I think you yes, called it. Yes, Stump, yeah, we used to play this game. I would ask, Jack would say, give me something that you think can't be measured. And I'd say, <laughs> uh, kids, they're not potholes, they have a free will. And Jack would say, where are the kids yeah. that are at risk? How do you determine that they're at risk? When are they being harmed? Uh, what hours of the day are the juvenile probation agents working? What hours are your rec centers open compared to when the kids are being harmed? Armed. So if it's worth doing, it can be measured. Only got a minute left. Uh, you also quote one of my favorites, Goethe, Johann Wolfgang. Uh, Whatever you can do or dream, you can. Begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic. Begin it now. Those are great words uh, for a guy that's known for his sorrows anyway. Uh, in your last 30 seconds or so, what's your, what's your advice for your colleagues out there in the hinterlands and government, how they can implement this kind of successful stories? Yeah, my advice is do not be talked down by your uh, own staff. Uh, don't begin it, you know, start the process. Don't relent. Uh, lift up the leaders. Measure performance. And understand that in this new game of democracy, openness and transparency are the opening antes for the trust required uh, for a government of, by, and for the people to actually deliver better results. Uh, begin it now and don't let up. Thank you, Governor. With that, we'll have to conclude our program today. I want to thank our guest, Martin O'Malley, former mayor of Baltimore and governor of Maryland. Governor, thanks for taking the time to be with us. It was thank really you, great. John. Pleasure. And thank all of you for listening. Content from this state and local program, which also includes curated news and original articles by yours truly and other more esteemed authors, is part of the recently expanded AskTheCIO.com. Hope you can join us again each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time or listen to a podcast afterwards. Until then, bye for now. I'm John Thomas Flynn.
You've been listening to Ask the CIO, Sled Edition with John Thomas Flynn on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.